This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Mjolnir, Carl Wenhau and Sting, signature weapons and combat mistakes in speculative fiction. Now, Jules, I have a confession to make. Okay. When you sent me the title to this episode, <laughs> I was still half asleep. <laughs> Did you think I'd sent it in, in, in Irish or something? No, no. It's Because uh, the thing is, I, I obviously... I, it was Mjolnir, Carwinna and stuff like that. And then it was Sting. And I just thought, a bit rude. And then I was like, Sting the sword from Lord of the Rings, Madeline, not the musician. <laughs> You know, I was halfway through reading that title and I was like, okay, it sounds like I'm I'm starting an invocation for an army of demons and then Sting. I'm actually invoking Sting. sting. I want Sting to appear in my, my drawn circle of blood. <laughs> there very, is very no sorry, greater sting. weapon than Sting. <laughs> but, I mean, if you've seen the original Dune and those, those, those PVC pants he wears when he gets out of the shower, it's kind of like, yeah, there is no greater weapon than Sting. <laughs> musician out there okay right sorry about that but you know right before this episode we were talking about how we're not going to go off on tangents we're going to stick to the topic yeah. in like three seconds in. yeah and even as jills was saying that i was like oh ho, 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 ho. not gonna happen <laughs> okay so um as you might have guessed from the title um we are talking about weaponry today Yes, uh, and we've already done an episode specifically about swords, mm-hmm. and we've definitely talked about fight scenes in a couple of episodes. Yeah, um, but we both like a cool weapon, mm-hmm. and we both get annoyed at weapon impracticalities. So we're going to take a look at that in writing terms today. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> so um, this hasn't actually come out of any particular irritation. So. Um, Usually, <laughs> you, you'll find yeah. that episodes are triggered because Jules and I have watched or read something and gone, hold on a minute, all my and bitter. <laughs> yes. Um, we're just nerds about this stuff. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a point to make. ba boom <laughs> It being weaponry, sorry. Yes. Unintentional pun there. <laughs> <laughs> was it? Was it unintentional? It really was. I'm, I'm dreadful for unintentional puns. I think I think I get a reputation for being wittier than I actually am, and it's things sort of, my subconscious slips things in. And... <laughs> Your subconscious. I'm not. I, my, my subconscious is very funny. Me, I don't know. Your subconscious <laughs> is very punny, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, this is a sort of spliced episode. So mm. we've got two complementary topics. Obviously, um, what about signature weapons, which is very much a thing in speculative fiction. And also, how how weaponry in general can just go wrong during a fight scene. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of two topics, but we think they go quite well together. And um, there's there's not really quite enough for two separate podcasts. We think. Yeah, but <laughs> we could be wrong. <laughs> we could be wrong once we get started. Um, we don't. Uh, we won't do tons of examples uh, because once we point out a few things, uh, we're confident that you'll find more examples uh for yourself and it should also mean that we don't overrun 
So <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed. So, what is a that... signature weapon? I think is the first. Yeah, um, and this this will be an easy one for most people. I think is basically if you're a gamer or you read a lot of epic fantasy, um, mm. then. You'll probably know this already, but a signature weapon is the sought-after, occasionally mystical weapon, the main character must either obtain or learn to wield effectively. So think of He-Man's sword, <laughs> which grants him the power to be He-Man. Um, or, you know, uh, other examples include Excalibur, Mjolnir, the subtle knife. Yeah. So that that sort of thing. <clears throat> yes. Sorry. Every time you mention He-Man, I just uh, <laughs> I just laugh. Uh, but with these examples, let me try that again. With these examples, um, we've got to ask, what's wrong with signature weapons? Now, uh, theoretically, nothing. A signature weapon is actually a really cool concept, and I think it's one that a lot of people can get behind and a lot of people love. I mean, we just love the idea of named swords and swords with cool powers and, you know, other things like that. Um, but they're not always done very well. Yeah. So Jules and I are going to go through a list of what we feel are the do's and don'ts of signature weapons. Yes. So, uh, to start off with, do make sure your signature weapon makes sense in a, in a cultural or world-building context, or have a really good reason why your main character wields it. Yes. <laughs> so, it's, it's no good having a character who is uh, wielding a Gurkha knife, for example, if yeah. you know, unless you're going to come up with an explanation why they, why they actually wield it, and if they actually understand something about it. Um, it can be, I mean, every culture has got its own bladed weapons, its own blood mm -hmm. force trauma type weapons, its own bow staffs, its own archery, etc. Yeah. Um, but there are some that are very specific to specific cultures and it's yeah. not really cool to just take something and not explain why you've taken it. Yeah, there's got to be a reason. And that's not to say that you can't have like a person with a weapon which isn't you know from the place that they are from uh, but there's got to be a reason for it um and it's got to be a good reason yeah so with that do here's the massive don't please for the love of god don't give everybody a katana yeah i mean and madeline and i love katanas you yes. know <laughs> big big fans of that particular sword there is a certain elegance about them Yes, But there is a trend in epic fantasy to have everyone armed with katanas and it doesn't make any sense when you've clearly based your world on medieval Europe. <laughs> yes. Um, and this is also the other really, really important thing is that there's this kind of idea, oh, katanas are the best swords ever. No, they're a type of sword. Um, and again, depending on what they're being used for, uh, they make sense in certain scenarios and they don't make sense in others. For example, with a katana, you cannot cut through metal armor and the sword and fighting style were developed based on very specific circumstances. Um, any sword enthusiast, enthusiast in your audience is going to know that. Yeah. Um, so it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense for a knight to be running around with a katana um, when he's gonna be facing off against lots and lots of people in metal plate armor. Um, also, if there's going to be lots of clashing and he's using it as what is essentially a bit of a, you know, 
a heavy hitting weapon. Katanas are not heavy hitting weapons. They are slicing weapons. They are good with slicing and stabbing. <laughs> yeah. And obviously the whole point with a katana was that you get Aido, the, the art of drawing a blade. The point was the blade comes out, someone's head comes off, the blade goes back in and you might just shake the blood off before it goes back in. It was supposed to be very, very efficient at killing people or lopping off limbs. It wasn't for a protracted sword fight a la a fencing style weapon. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want that. Also, because obviously it will depend on how well the katana is made, but they're quite thin blades. Um, so they're not actually really good for for, for blunt force. Um, and they can snap quite easily if they're not used correctly. Yeah, yeah definitely. So, I mean, the, the entire art of it, the whole sort of spiritual practice behind it, all of it is fascinating. But again... Don't make it the default weapon of everyone in your fantasy novel. It just, it doesn't make sense. There are loads of other really cool swords and blades out there. Yeah, I should also say that a katana isn't just, okay, well, I have an Asian character, so I'm going to give them a katana. Oh. Don't do that. No. Uh <laughs> Chinese swords tend to be straight, for example. Yeah. Um, everyone, you know, all cultures across, every culture is going to have different swords and stuff like that. Now, some of these may have been informed by others, and obviously different periods are going to have different swords as well. Even if you look at Japanese swords, the katana isn't the only kind of Japanese weapon, and certainly not the only kind of Japanese sword. Um, so do bear that in mind if you are you know, giving swords over to your characters. What kind of sword is appropriate for their fighting style, the era, um, etc. Yeah. Okay, another do. Do give a weapon non-combat properties. I, I like this as a trope. This is pretty cool. So <laughs> weapons are by, by nature designed for violence. So any weapon that has something a little bit extra stands out. So for example, mm. Bilbo slash Frodo's elven blade sting glows when orcs are nearby which is super useful if you know you're a small hobbit and <laughs> you need to defend yourself you could avoid the fight entirely because the sword's going hey there's something i normally kill over there <laughs> that's cool yeah um there's also this <laughs> again sorry i have a small caveat but it's just the idea now i'm just imagining the entirety of lord of the rings exactly the same except god. sting is just sting and he glows whenever there are bad guys nearby oh god madeline please don't <laughs> yes i'm doing it anyway moving... um, he's dr you, you know how he's dressed as well exactly like in dune anyway moving on um <laughs> uh, okay there's also the sword of peace from the trillium saga which is uh, julian may marion zimmer bradley etc um and this sword doesn't have a point on it. it you can still it's got a cutting edge but no point um and the whole point of this sword is that if it's used correctly it, it, it can cause everyone's anger to come down a notch so that people will come to peaceful f solutions which is a really interesting property for a sword that is very, very cool. I like that. I like it a lot. Um, also, obviously, you get examples of swords like having strange properties um, and non-combat properties in mythology as well, uh, but we don't have really have time to sort of go into it. But um, certainly I think you get that in some of the Arthurian swords as well and stuff like that. It's a pretty cool trend yeah. and I rather like it. I mean, like it. I mentioned in the title Khan Wenhao from the, the Welsh version of the Arthurian yeah. saga. Um, Carn Wenhau means little white hilt, but basically it's yeah. also known as the shadowed blade. And the point was it concealed its its owner. So if the, the, its owner, you know, pulled it from its, its sheath, then it would conceal the owner. Not make them invisible, but make them unnoticeable. It was supposed to be able to cut through shadow. 
So it would, That's pretty damn cool. you know, it would remove enchantments and deceptions, but it would also hide its owner from harm. That's pretty damn cool. Yeah. Um, okay. Also, so uh, here's a don't. Uh, don't assume more damage makes a greater weapon. Um, audiences can't see the mathematics that calculates your world, and if they could, they wouldn't really care. Um, they know a sword cuts and a hammer smashes, and that's all they kind of really need to know. So when Thor loses Mjolnir, it's a character arc about him learning that he doesn't need a weapon because everything he needs is inside him. And then you get to Infinity War and Endgame, and marketing decided that he very much needs a weapon, so he gets an axe, which does pretty much what Mjolnir did, but with more damage. Um, the only thing this accomplishes is that it makes Thor's previous chapter, ca- sorry, character development redundant. Yeah, it was annoying. I mean, it's a cool looking weapon, the big axe he gets, but I had to Google it to find out its name. It's called Stormbreaker. And you put yeah. Stormbreaker next to Mjolnir, which one are you going to remember? You're going to remember the yeah. hammer. Um, and the whole sort of like, well, I used to be able to knock 10 people over with Mjolnir and now I can knock over 20 with this axe. And it's just like... yeah. What are we getting from this? It's not... It, it doesn't automatically make it a better weapon. Yeah, it, see, it was an interesting thing because, you know, the whole point of um, Thor's kind of character journey, as you said, was that he, you know, actually was able to use some pretty amazing powers even without Mjolnir, yeah. you know? Um, and so for me, you know, Mjolnir is just a tool for him to be able to channel things. And I don't mind the storyline where they say, actually, this tool is no longer efficient for the power that you are wielding. That's fine. Um, but it still, it just didn't feel right. None of it felt right, you know? No, no, it didn't. And yeah, okay, you get this great little bit where um, Captain America picks up Mjolnir finally. And there's yeah. the whole worthiness thing. But really, that doesn't actually affect the plot. So it's a nice thing for for us nerds in the audience. But in narrative terms, it doesn't really do very much. Yeah. So, yeah. But here is a do. Do make your signature weapon cooler by enhancing its base characteristics in an interesting way. So um, this is one I really like. And I actually find this weapon quite sinister. That is the subtle knife from his dark materials. It is so sharp yes. that it can cut everything, literally including the fabric of reality. And it's a liability because it's so easy to misuse. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think the first time that Will actually uses it, he cuts off two of his own fingers and the wounds do not stop bleeding without some sort of magical assistance. Yeah, absolutely. So heavy price to pay to be marked by that particular blade. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... I I really like it when you you have these kinds of weapons that will, if not used correctly, cause damage, or can be wielded even against the person who is using it. Um, so they actually have to be sensible about how they use it. They actually have to approach it with caution and consideration. Otherwise, it could very well harm them. Yeah. Instead. Yeah. Absolutely. It's just the the sort of the the amorality of a blade. A blade is a blade. It will, you know, if it's not wielded correctly, it will do damage to whomever, you know. 
Yeah, definitely. It was something that Ayorik Bernison says in his Dark Materials is the fact that a blade's purpose is to cut. And when you use a blade, you are trying to cut something. However, yeah. the subtle knife also has another purpose of its own. It has its own agenda. And that's very sinister. That's like the ring, the one ring where its own agenda is to get back to, to Sauron. Yeah. Okay, so a... Don't. <laughs> uh, don't use an overpowered weapon in too many melee situations. So essentially, if your main character can sweep the board clean with one blow of their weapon, then force them into a situation where they can't use that aspect of the weapon or it's not going to be a satisfying story. Yeah. This is kind of how I feel about the, the Sword of Truth. Um Terry Goodkind, and I've probably just invoked his ghost, so sorry about that, guys. Um, <laughs> but the whole thing with... The, I mean, the Sword of Truth is supposed to basically cut deceptions, but there's a very little of that and a lot more sort of like just cutting things up in general. Um, yeah. But it's kind of like there's this terrible, terrible evil. No one can stand against it. Blah, 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 blah. End of the book, Richard Rall turns up and, and basically does his war wizard shit and it vaporises an entire army with one move. And it's like, well, if you could have done that, why didn't you turn up like 300, 400 pages earlier and save us the bother? Yeah. Um, and it's the, this same principle. So you get on the board and you happen to have the most powerful weapon there, then that's not going to be a fun fight. So unless the point is to say, well, this guy can, you, you know, it's kind of like when we talked about teams and we had, you know, the, mm. the, the, the strong guy and... Um, the reason that they're so often taken out of the equation is because if they can turn up and just win the fight for you, there's no point having the fight. Yeah. So same with this sort of weapon. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, um, I think what happens is that you get examples where you have a really overpowered weapon and then you need to kind of raise the stakes so that the character who's wielding it has difficulties. So what happens is that suddenly the, that weapon isn't enough and then that weapon never seems to be enough again which doesn't make sense no it doesn't to me particularly if you um, spent a really long time or several books even building up as to what a fantastic weapon it is exactly um you can very well say okay this weapon isn't going to be enough to blow away these particular characters who are at this particular caliber like when um thor tried to use mjolnir against Hella. Yeah. You can do that. I have no problem with that. But then it would have it wouldn't have made any sense if from that point on Mjolnir was useless against even com common enemies. Yeah. Which you sometimes do see. And I just think really every single enemy <sighs> past this point is that much stronger? It it doesn't it doesn't make any sense at all. Um and it's just not interesting. I am much more... I much prefer a weapon which can be very, very powerful, but there are limits and situations which allow that power to be used. And that power might be useful against certain things, but not useful against other things. Yeah, absolutely. And part of actually attaining some sort of mastery of weaponry in real life is knowing what weapon to pit against what other weapon. <laughs> And yeah. knowing how to use the weapon properly. Obviously, I will not follow that tangent, but 
you know, that sort of basic knowledge can really help you. Okay, so another do. Do give your weapon unusual combat properties. So the best signature weapons change how a character fights. For example, mm. Yondu's arrow is controlled through whistling. I've always thought that one was kind of cool. It was really cool. I love that. <laughs> it's kind of like the, the, the ultimate um, sheepdog trials, isn't it? Except it's a deadly arrow. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, that's such a great example. <laughs> um, also, you have Captain America's shield. Okay, bonus points already for the fact that he has a shield, which is not typically an offensive weapon. Um, but yes. also, it will return to him. Mm -hmm. um, Mjolnir yeah. also returns to Thor when thrown, which is very bloody useful because he throws it around a lot. Um, and it, it also helps him fly. And it helps him fly. So, yeah, these are unusual properties. They're not typical for a weapon because generally a, a warhammer doesn't help you fly that I'm aware of. But it, it, it's a cool thing. It's useful. It makes a weapon memorable and more of a signature piece. Absolutely. Um, and it's just fun as well. It, it It's also kind of nice to have a weapon that has a use beyond just battle. Yeah, absolutely. Um it, it kind of actually also gives a weapon a greater sense of characteristic, particularly if it's a signature weapon. You kind of almost want the weapon to have its own character. Yeah. And actually, there's quite a bit of... I think it's mostly um, indie-type books, but there's quite a lot of books out there, like uh, Lindsay Baroka's series. Uh, I think it's like a Dragon Chronicle series, but um, where mm. the sword, a lot of the swords are actually forged out of people's souls. So the sword actually has a personality and when it bonds with a wielder, they're having this, this psychic communication. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. There is, because I think you get a lot of that also in sort of Chinese fantasy yeah. and Chinese mythology. There is a book um, I've mentioned the series that it's based on Mordao Zushi, uh, the series is The Untamed, the book Mordao Zushi. Um, one of the characters has a sword called uh, Suibiem, I think it's called, um, and that means whatever. Uh, because they give all their, their swords names because their swords have souls in them. Um, and when he, the character uh, Wei Wuxian, asked, was asking for advice, on what to call the sword, um, his uh, kind of his adoptive father just said, "Oh, whatever you like," and so he went, "Okay, I'll just call it whatever then." So he called the sword whatever, and the sword is incredibly faithful to him. So faithful to him, in fact, that um, it locks itself in its sheath and cannot be drawn by anyone but him. Which actually causes problems for him further down the line, <laughs> yeah. Because at because at one point he's um <laughs> he's in he's in disguise. He's obviously doesn't want people to realise it's him, and someone exposes him by uh by pointing out that this, he's drawn the sword, and they're like the only person who can draw that is Wei Wuxian, and he's like, oh come on. <laughs> But it was such a unique kind of little thing, just this idea that this sword is just so loyal. It's like, no, no one else shall wield me but my master. Um, and that was a really, really interesting uh, thing. And it also creates a great bit of drama later on when someone else is able to wield the sword and uh, it's revealed why and etc. So um, yeah, I, I really, really liked that. So. It doesn't need to be a big thing, but having small little things like that, I think, really enhance a weapon. Definitely. 
Okay, a don't. Um, mm-hmm. Don't give your weapon unimportant flavour. <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking about the lickable flavour. Well, I mean, you could. That would be a weird thing to do with, say, a sword. <laughs> uh, you know, you've got a hammer and it is literally a toffee hammer. It's so delicious. And actually, toffee sets really hard, doesn't it? So it would be quite a good blunt for... Anyway. <laughs> Went to a weird place there. Okay, basically, um, I can be in two minds about this because sometimes it's part of the world building and if you've got Mm -hmm. fantastic world building, then I just want to know more. I'm fine if you name every single bit of sharpened metal in your world because if you've done it right, then I'm there for it. Um, Yeah. Tolkien, for example. And I get the fact that when Tolkien does it, you know, every sword does have a name and a history it can come across as unnecessary exposition. And, you know, I get that. Uh, I also get that what Tolkien was doing was writing a saga, an epic, whereby if you've ever read Beowulf or the Poetic Edda or anything like that, you'll see that every bloody sword and blade has some sort of name and history and it was owned by six people, uh, distinguished personages before this, etc., etc. And that's kind of what he was doing. However, in terms of communicating a story, no, it's not great. It doesn't really help. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if it if it's if if this flavour, if you like, is not actually enhancing the character arc or the um ongoing plot or whatever, then it it's probably unnecessary wordage. Yeah. Probably. Um also it's just it's kind of like adding characters that don't actually provide anything for the plot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you can take, I mean, I wouldn't. I'm not one of these people who says, "Yeah, you should pair everything to the bone." Um, if it, you know, if it's not needed, it shouldn't be there because we talked about the whole, you know, the, yeah. the cozy moments thing, where sometimes you do need a few little things that aren't technically needed but actually help in other ways. Um, but yeah, every single sword being named is probably not one of them. <laughs> yeah. However, one of our do's is do give a weapon important flavour. Um, so you can make your weapon cool without any special properties or tech by giving it a reputation that has bearing on the plot or the character or the character's arc. Um, for example, Rand's sword, uh, which is inherited from his father in The Wheel of Time, carries a heron mark, which is a sign of a master swordsman. Um, but Rand himself can't fight. So this sword's reputation means that every have a go trying to build a reputation attacks Rand. Which kind of sucks. Yeah, and Rand eventually learns to use a sword to live up to his father's legacy. So that's a pretty cool idea. Um, there's also like the emotional side of things. For example, you might have a, you know, you could have it related to an art which is, this is my father's sword. Or this is my, um, you know... Uh, this is this sword has been passed down in my family, and that can just that can be about, uh, you know, the closeness with with family, with ancestry, with expectation. This can all be part of the emotional arc of the character, even if the sword itself has no properties. Um, an example of this again, I'm going to draw on Moda uh, Zushi, um, is one of the characters Jinlin. He is an orphan. He lost his, um, he lost his parents, obviously, uh, but he has his father's sword. 
Um, and there is this scene, I don't want to go into too many spoilers, but there's a scene where he's being confrontational and he's having a lot of difficulty because the person who killed his father might not have actually been responsible for his actions. Um, and is actually turns out to be a pretty nice person. Uh, but of course, for Jin Lin, th this doesn't change the fact that his father's dead. His parents are dead, um, and it's it's this guy's fault. And so he's having a really difficult time, and he's holding this sword up, um, and everyone's trying to de-escalate the situation, and they're just saying, just put the sword down, just put the sword down. Um, and he he's just a teenager, he's actually a kid, um, and he just turns around and says, no, this is my father's sword, I won't put it down. And it's this brilliant scene which is so condensed into something small which shows that he's wielding his father's sword in vengeance. This is also the only part of his father that he has left. And it's he's suddenly faced with the fact that his own heart knows this isn't right. His own heart has come to sort of like the people that he's with um, and to trust the people that he's with. But the sword is kind of he feels the sword is thirsting for blood or requires blood um and it's just it's such a simple and small scene but it's so powerful because of that simple line which is that this is my father's sword and that's why he won't put it down like if it was his own sword he would have yeah and i thought that that is such a brilliant brilliant way of adding flavor to that so a sword doesn't need to have massive special properties it can just have you know its own story its own reputation its own history which is very personal to the character yeah definitely um same with uh luke skywalker's first lightsaber which belonged to his father before his father became darth vader and it's yeah. something that we learn a bit later on okay there is an issue here because because of going back and doing the prequels it's kind of like well this was my father's sword i wield anakin skywalker's blade it's like yeah he killed an entire temple full of younglings with that <laughs> so there's some not great stuff unfortunately but the whole sort of luke feeling i suppose in a sense disenfranchised and divorced from his own sense of family he doesn't fit in being yeah. handed it is very much a, a king arthur type story in a respect where he is going and finding this legacy that's been left for him yeah Absolutely. And they managed to do it without naming the lightsabers, fortunately. <laughs> they didn't need to. They were colour-coded, Jules. <laughs> yeah, Dave the lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go into some common weapon mistakes. Yes. All right. <laughs> Uh, so now to the actual fighting. Now, many writers, especially if they don't have any weapons experience, have their characters wield weapons the wrong way. Um, and there are some specific things that need to be avoided here. Yeah, um, this first one's a, a big one for me, and it's something that I find quite difficult to get past, particularly when I'm yeah. watching a film or whatever. But that is physical space. So is there enough room to swing a great sword, for example? Um, if not, and your main character is fighting on the spiralling staircase inside a stone tower, then they are restricted to less effective stabbing motions. 
Uh, the thing to note here is that many bastard hand and a half and great swords were not especially sharp at the tip because when they were invented, your best bet, your best chance rather, of getting through armor was one impact damage from hitting someone with a fuck off big piece of metal, or two <laughs> cutting at the joint areas where armor was weaker to allow movement. So stabbing with a great sword in confined quarters is not very effective, and you will tire because see above, fuck off big pieces of metal are heavy to wield. <laughs> So basically, it's always remember physical space. And that goes for any type of weapon, um, whether yeah. you're looking at a ranged weapon like a bow or a uh, sort of medium range weapon like a spear or a pike or something like that, or even a gun, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also, you know, when you're talking about looking at physical space, you also need to consider timing as well. So crossbows, for example... Uh, they're not actually that quick to load. No, and you well once you've learned, you they're 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 easier to learn than than an actual longbow, but they they yeah. do take time to load. That's why the longbow outperformed them so well because once the archers had the skill, they had to be able. Was it nine arrows in a minute? Which is a hell of a thing because the the but the draw strength on a bow is around one hundred and thirty five kilos. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and depending on the bows, there were some archers who could release, um, you know, like an arrow a second, not on a longbow. Um, but obviously, you couldn't, you can't maintain that, <laughs> and accuracy is going to be, uh, you know, um, questionable. But yes, uh, loading a crossbow takes time. It's quite difficult, um, and. It's also a ranged weapon, not a great thing to be using um, in a confined space. Uh, and it's so there's yeah, that, you've got to think about timing and space. Definitely. It's the same with any ranged weapon. Um, I know whips and things look cool for fantasy type fights, but they're not actually very practical. Um, it's the same with things like uh, three section, you know, sansetsukons, three section staffs. The amount yeah. of training and skill that has to go into making that into a, even a semi-effective weapon is phenomenal. I mean, anyone who has any basic skill with nunchucker, um, something yeah. which I've learned, um, they're very, very difficult. And when they go wrong, they go spectacularly wrong really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. You can be very, very skilled in them and still end up bludgeoning yourself. Yeah, so imagine something like a, a, a rice flail, which was sort of traditional Okinawan and Chinese-Japanese type weapon mm -hmm. of, in various different iterations, it, you'd have to have almost practised with nothing else. And once somebody gets past the end that's doing the swinging, the bit that's actually going to do the damage, once they're past that, you are absolutely fucked, unless you've got something yes. else. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's like, you better have some knives or something or be really, really good at hand-to-hand -hand and be prepared to drop your weapon because at that point, it's all over. You know, it's like Indiana yeah. Jones's whip. Yeah, this is all great fun, but you know what? You notice how he also carries a gun and he's pretty good with his fists? There's a reason for yeah. that. Absolutely. Uh, time and place, time and place. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, the next one is overly complicated weaponry and tech. Um, obviously, the more difficult you make your weapon to wield, the more likely your main character will just cut their own hand off with it. Um, now, this is very often a sci-fi or an epic fantasy issue, so a weapon with many cutting edges 
Um, and the main character doesn't know how to hold it. Yeah, I mean, you see it, and this is something that you get an alien and the human sort of manages to get the alien's weapon. It's kind of like, it's got so many rotating cutting edges, I don't know where to put my hand, and it's like, maybe just don't put your hand on it then. You know, at yeah. a thought. <laughs> and you think, to be honest, yeah. <laughs> think of the damage you can do with your own kitchen knife, just accidentally chopping some onions or something. It's like, yeah. Maybe the thing with all the rotating, sharp, shiny things is, is not the weapon for you. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the same with laser guns uh, or rifles in sci-fi. Um, I mean, the thing is that modern guns are already really effective, so why would anyone make something that shot focused beams of light? Well, actually, I can imagine why they would do it, to see if they can. But... Yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, we're back here to the sort of the physical space. If your story is set on a spaceship, then a weapon that will disrupt organic tissue but not cause a hull breach would probably make sense. Um, just be careful not to make it the gunniest gun that ever fired a plasma <laughs> blast. Uh, in additional... Uh, sorry, in addition, remember that a weapon's primary objective is to kill as efficiently as possible. Not necessarily as messily as possible. They're not torture devices, they're weapons. So making your weapon something that causes an especially painful death is probably illogical. Uh, while horrific deaths do happen from a variety of weapons, it's usually a side effect, not the end goal. Yeah, it's something that kind of bugs me, and you see it in all kinds of speculative fiction, sort of like, ah, oh, but I'm holding, I don't know, this plasma phase two, whatever, and it's like, it'll disrupt all your tissues and take you four hours to die, and it's like, why? I mean, I might be in terrible pain, yeah. but do you know what I can do in four hours if you piss me off that badly? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th I think they, they did it once well in um, uh, Star Trek um, with Data, where there was a gun. It says, so it kills, you in, it kills you in seconds, but it's a very painful death, which is why it was illegalized. Yeah. The weapon was illegalized because of the way that it works. And that kind of made sense in that you are immobilised and you do die in seconds. So it's quicker than actually just being shot with a gun, to be honest. Uh, and it doesn't matter where you're hit. It kind of... It it will just kill you no matter where you're hit, even if you're just hit on the arm or something like that. Um, so that kind of made sense. And it made sense also that it was... But it's, so, it's such a horrific form of death that it's been illegalised because there are even limits to actually, okay, if you're going to kill someone, you kill someone. But killing someone that painfully is just cruel yeah um so that can kind of work um but <laughs> yeah it's a i i completely agree that um weapons are there to to kill um or to you know at least incapacitate incapacitate um in some form so they've got to kind of make sense with that again there's a difference between a weapon and a torture device uh, so do keep that in mind um also it's this thing that really annoys me where you have um just someone who is good with a certain type of weapon who will immediately go oh okay and pick up a totally alien weapon and then be able to use it like a master as well as, you know, the other people who are using it. Now, if you have a lot of weapons training and you pick up another weapon which has kind of similar sort of things, you might be able to pass by with it. But frankly, the more alien it is, um, even weapons which are quite similar are going to have a different feel. 
And if you are an expert in one particular type of weaponry, um, you might be able to, as I said, pass by with another form of weapon. Um, you might even excel in it with a little bit of practice. Um, but picking up weaponry which is totally alien to you and then being a master at it straight away just doesn't make any sense to me at all. No, and to be honest, it's something that you learn if you learn any weapons training. It is that no weapon is actually better than the wrong weapon. Because yeah. the wrong weapon is a big distraction. You cannot afford to be distracted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you cannot afford to kind of make mistakes with it either. Yeah. Um, and anyone who is, you know, very good at weaponry, right, they might go, well, I'm going to hedge my bets uh, because it looks like I can, I can do this. But at the same time, they might also look at it and go like, I'm not risking that because I'm more likely to take off my own hand or blast myself than actually do do any good. Yeah, so, um, so that's definitely something to think about. Okay, um, another mistake. Ignoring the stun setting. <laughs> this is the, the science fiction, but also fantasy favourite. So you have a non-lethal weapon that will render an enemy unconscious with zero harm so they can be taken alive. Now, I get the attraction of this because you need your, your good guys not to be killing everybody, depending on what you're writing. Yeah. Um, so having someone taken alive so that they can face justice, etc. It's like the whole knocking someone out thing, which, by the way, is not actually a very safe thing to do. I'd like to just point that out. Um, as someone who's been knocked out a couple of times, I don't recommend it. It's not great. Chances are you will get a concussion. You may get brain damage further down the line. Uh, yes. Something they certainly found with Knights. They definitely have found it with American football players. Yes. This is this is not a good thing. Um, it's the same. It's, it's unrealistic to have something that has a stun setting, if you like, and have it not have any effect on someone other than to render them unconscious because... It's just not safe to continually render people unconscious. I cannot emphasize that enough. Yeah. Um, so that that's already a bit of an issue. But in real life, we know that there are many supposedly non-lethal weapons that do in fact cause death or injury. So rubber bullets can kill you. Um, yeah. You know, the guns that fire beanbags at you in the wrong place can kill you. Yeah. So it can certainly cause injury. Um, people have lost eyes and things. So, yes, it, it's it's not great. So a weapon that would perfectly stun a person, it, it also causes the problem of why wouldn't you shoot first? So this is a more subtle problem. But in narrative terms, yeah. it removes the tension. So let's say that Madeline and I are in a standoff. We're each holding phaser rifles on each other. We've both got them on the stun <laughs> setting because we're not animals. We don't want to just vaporise each other. No. So we've got a stun setting. At that point, there's nothing to lose from being the person who shoots first because I know I'm not going to kill her. But mm -hmm. I might get there first, so I might get to be the person who wins the fight. Yeah. So it, it, it's that sort of thing. It, it just kind of removes the... If you've got one person who's willing to kill and the other person who's not willing to kill, that's a different sort of tension. So, for example, if you've got the Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing where Oz is not himself, mm -hmm. he's in his werewolf form... And Buffy's kind of like, yeah, I don't actually want to kill him. He is a friend, but he will kill me at the moment because he's not in his right yeah. mind. Then that's a different scenario. So her having a a tranquilizer gun and getting everything wrong because she's had no training with a tranquilizer gun yeah. actually works really well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, and I think that's how they get by most of the time in, in things like Star Trek. 
um, where of course everyone else is trying to kill them and they're using their faces. I mean, at that point, you kind of like, yeah, you're idealistic, but it's a bit stupid. <laughs> a little bit stupid, maybe, because you know you shouldn't get into a punching match if you're not willing to swing your fist, kind of thing. But anyway, I get that the good guys are there trying not to escalate the violence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, it makes me think of... So I mentioned earlier on uh, that Star Trek episode where you had that weapon which killed someone in a really horrific way. Um, and uh, weirdly enough, it's a, it's a really interesting episode where Data actually gets hold of the weapon. Now, of course, Data is kind of built not to harm humans. So he can stun them, he can knock them unconscious, but he, he's he's not meant to kill them. But he's faced with this guy who he's just watched use this weapon and knows, and he's faced with a situation where he knows that if he doesn't stop this man, um, this man will just continue to do what he's doing. Yeah. So it's kind of his face with this moral dilemma of... Um, I actually kind of need to kill him. And it's a really interesting episode because they leave it up to us to decide whether he ha did actually try to kill him or not. Because just as he's kind of about to decide whether to fire the, the weapon or not, he gets, um, uh, whatchamacallit it up, uh, beamed up. Yeah. And uh, they're like, oh, there seems to be a weapon firing. Well, okay, disable it. Um, and then when he appears obviously uh the weapon hasn't fired because it's been disabled and they say you know that a weapon fired in that and he said oh it must have malfunctioned and you don't know whether data's lying or not now you could argue no data's incapable of lying in that sense um or it could be that data very much actually did just try to kill that guy but we don't know and it's left up to kind of uh, for us to decide, yeah. which I think is is really interesting in a way, a way of doing it, in that data just went. Actually, it's more logical for me for me to kill you in this horrific way yeah. than for me to let you live. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, um, so <laughs> pretending guns don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's depressing for the storyteller, but in most scenarios, a gun will beat a sword. Um, if it doesn't, you better have a good reason why. Uh, you also need a good reason why characters trying to kill each other go for a me go for melee combat over, I don't know, an AK-47 <laughs> that happens to be hanging on the weapons rack. I mean, I always think that like Harry Potter would have been much shorter if Harry just had a gun. <laughs> Yeah, although... What's Voldemort going to do? I mean, you kind of get that. My, that's the whole thing, isn't it? The whole sort of, like, you must win without killing. So that's kind of it, part of it, I guess. Yeah. But there's also the whole idea of um, uh, human devices and machines and things don't work terribly well around magic. And technically a gun is a machine, even if it doesn't, you know, have tech. So maybe maybe that's part of it. But but yeah, it's it's weird when you get things like you they kind of get away with it in star wars with the lightsabers and the fact that everyone shoots um, you know lasers at them and they fend yeah. them off using their lightsabers and it's fine because they're using the force and not everyone could do it anyone else would kind of be screwed kind of thing yeah exactly. also stormtroopers don't apparently get training of any kind because <laughs> they cannot so shoot we'll put a shit. really interesting 
someone put a really interesting theory forward, which is that stormtroopers don't actually want to be killing people, so that they mess on purpose. Yeah, they're kind of like and, the, uh, I'm gonna... the First World War <laughs> soldiers, aren't yeah. they? Like, I'm actually just firing my weapon in the air because I don't want to get yeah. court-martialed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But um, yeah, I mean, the whole pretend, pretending guns don't exist thing kind of goes a step further because you have Klingons who, by rights, should probably be able to sweep the battlefield of pretty much anyone. They've got two sets of every organ, so they're incredibly yeah. difficult to mortally wound. And they're bigger, they're stronger. I mean, and you know, in terms of sheer physical courage, they, most of them have got it kind of thing. It's only yeah. when they come up against something like the Jem'Hadar that it's... It, it's kind of more of an even battlefield and yet they yeah. charge into battle with swords with battleths and things and it's yeah. like and it's not that they don't have guns they have klingon disruptors and things it's just they kind of very rarely use them so you, the star trek guys have kind of had to build this entire culture of ah today is a good day to die we will do this the honorable way with swords and everyone else is like no fuck that we're gonna use our phases <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going toe to toe with you with a sword. I'm not insane. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's, I, th I think, because obviously the whole kind of thing with the Klingons, um, you know, it was sort of meant to be tribal, but I think they also drawn a lot of the ideas of, um, you know, the samurai and stuff like they that. They are as basically well. Viking samurai. Yeah. Um, but of course, this whole idea of like, oh, well, the samurai, like samurai used guns. Yep. They did. They really did use guns. Um, the samurai also, the, the well off samurai also had rhinoceros hide armor, which made them slightly harder to kill as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, of course, it, it's worth obviously recognizing that depending when your story is set, people might have guns, but they might not be very effective. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. If you're looking historically, um, the the range and accuracy on a gun in sort of the 1500s because we did have some guns then and we had cannons yeah. and things yeah um, during Hafler Henry V got cannoneers in from Germany and and Bavaria specifically to uh, mm -hmm. can to to bombard the walls of of the castle and they weren't terribly good but you know it was better than no cannons at all and again it's the range and accuracy a longbow could pick off the cannoneers quite easily yeah yeah absolutely um and of course it was the how long they would take to reload yeah as well <laughs> this is something to think about so if someone's coming at you with a sword um and they're running at you with a sword and you're desperately trying to reload your gun at that point it makes a lot more sense to pick up your sword definitely um, and it's things like um not just the reloading, but the, the quality of the weapon and how expensive they are to produce. So can you afford to yeah. give your infantry guns? Probably not in a lot of centuries. And when you can yeah. afford to give them guns, are they likely to take about 40% of people's hands off when they try and fire them? Well, actually, yes, we, we know that happened. <laughs> the, the thing that I really like is that obviously in things like Deadpool there's this whole idea that he can sort of cut the bullets and stuff like that and use it as a defence but I really liked in the Deadpool movie where you have this whole action sequence of him going shoo 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 with the sword and then you look at him and he's been shot like six times 
It's, yeah, it's just because it's Deadpool. It's kind of like, oh, well, that didn't work. But oh, I guess I can just yeah. shrug it off because I'm yeah. not going to die. Because he can, because he's not going to die. So it was, I really liked that because they did that whole sort of, oh, look at him. That's awesome. And then it's like, but it's not actually that effective because it's a sword against bullets. But he happens to be immortal. So it's all right. Um the one thing I will say, if someone is holding a gun literally at your head, as in you can feel it mm. against your temple or wherever, um, yeah. the thing that bugs me is when, yeah, I mean, initially you comply with what people want you to do, but if they were yeah. going to kill you with that gun straight off, they'd have done it and you wouldn't have known. You, your, your soul would have been in heaven before the devil knew you were dead kind of thing. Um, <laughs> oh, you're here. <laughs> it's like, oh, damn it. Missed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so there's that. So you, you've got a, you've got a negotiation window there potentially. Yeah. On the other hand, if someone is holding a gun at your head, they do not know how to use a gun properly because it is a ranged weapon. And if you remove the target, so move the target, i.e., move your head very very quickly, and then get the gun off them, which isn't as hard as you think it is, yeah. you are much better off. Um, so again, whenever it's kind of like a gun to the head situation. Unless someone's an absolute master with the gun and they expect you to be able to do those sort of things, or they expect you yeah. to not panic, because it, a gun's an equaliser. It makes a small person into a big person. It's kind of like a knife in that respect. Yeah. So, yeah, it's horses for courses. But generally, in a ranged situation, gun beats sword, because you're not going to throw a sword with anywhere near the accuracy someone's going to fire a gun. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> of course... Fantasy is fantasy, and sometimes we just want to see a cool fight scene and see the impossible. Um, but you've got to recognise that it is impossible. Yeah. Um, don't write it as in uh, as if this is a credible thing that could happen. I kind of liked it in Men at Arms. Terry Pratchett got around the whole idea of a gun, or a gone, as he calls it. <laughs> <laughs> um, when he has Vimes looking for this weapon that is so dangerous it can literally kill from a distance. And it is basically basically a, a gun, a pistol, like an old dueling mm -hmm. pistol type thing. And yeah. Vimes has this entire internal monologue on it, a sort of, you know, I do a dangerous job. If I wielded it, I'd be wielding it for good. But then he's like, killing should not be that easy. Killing should not be something where you can just pull a lever, a little device, and it's over mm. and you don't have to think about it or really even look in someone's face when you do it and yeah. so he gets rid of the gone um the gone gets gone <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's it's a really interesting look it and i i kind of admire the fact that pratchett didn't go oh guns just haven't been invented because this is a medieval thing and yet have things like yeah. um, moving pictures and popcorn and uh, photographs yeah. and things um that tackled it with a, no, somebody found the patent for this and made the conscious decision that it should never see the light of day because it was too much power. Yeah. It's a very cool idea. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, final, final one. Uh, sparring with live blades. Now, the point of sparring or training is to get better. If your characters spar with live blades and no body armour, then you are going to end up with a lot of training injuries. Or deaths. Yeah, which is not what you want. <laughs> no, not if you... Yeah, basically, if you're training an army, you're not going to have much army left if you start them off with life blades. Yes. Um, there does come a point in sparring where you where you do use non-bladed, non non-baited blades. Mm. Um, and there, it, there comes a point in sparring where you might use 
semi-live or actual live blades and i've certainly had live blade fights flights yes (laughs) they picked up the knife and i ran the other way that was the sensible thing to do (laughs) um but i have to say you have to achieve a general level of mastery and you might still get cut um yeah uh, basically you would do it with a a live blade because you can't progress if you don't know what that feels like I will say it's done slowly. It's usually an experienced person against a more, a less experienced person, and you are not trying to hurt each other. And generally, you're fairly well padded with body armor. Uh, again, yes. with karate, um, when I was out in South Africa learning to knife fight, I did do it with sort. You, they put you in what you would normally sort of wear, kind of thing, because there's no point mm. getting you used to a situation where you're in body armor and things with a knife fight. But again. The blades were slightly blunted. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> I'd be missing several chunks of skin by now. And yeah, you can absolutely. tell proper blade masters because the, their hands are cut up. They've got lots of scars. Yeah. Um, it's also worth noting, of course, that training with a sword doesn't always just involve hitting other people. No, absolutely not. Um, and sometimes you might actually have your actual sword just to go through very, very, uh, like, uh, what the Japanese would call kata, forms. Um, you know, so you might go through forms with your actual blade in order to get used to the weight of it, in order to get used to the feel of it. These tend to be quite slow. Um, and again, there's a danger there, and you wouldn't do that until you've progressed to a certain level. So you would know all the movements, you would know the the stances, you would kind of have experience with that. You don't start off with that in the least. Absolutely. When they started nights off learning sword play, uh, well, they tend to start them off as quite young children with wooden swords, and they would make the sword in, in proportion to the child, and yeah. the sword would get bigger and heavier and weighted like a sword as you went up. They don't give them a knife straight away. <laughs> yeah. Not a great it's like, idea. <laughs> you know, not in an era where infant mortality is already so high. It's like, yeah, you'll know, just let them play with real knives, you know. We'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, you know, past a certain point, yes, you do need to train with an actual sword, but um you probably wouldn't be sparring with an actual sword until you were much, much, much further down the line, and you certainly wouldn't be sparring probably mm. with your own sword. Um really unless you know there was really no alternative anymore so and basically i think the thing that doesn't necessarily get covered in speculative fiction when they show people training and training with live blades or even live rounds of ammunition is the fact that training is supposed to be something you do in partnership with each other so you train with people that you can trust not to actually (laughs) injure or hurt you deliberately And I get that a lot of this is about people exploring the idea of having a bully in the dojo kind of thing. And, you know, that is something that can happen, although they tend to get squashed very, very quickly and got rid of, in my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, But I've also seen someone argue that training with live blade should be absolutely verboten in all speculative fiction because it's giving the impression that violence is okay, And... I disagree with that because there are situations where violence is is called for. I don't think it should be your first go-to, but I do think there is merit in being able to defend yourself and answer violence with violence because some people cannot understand anything else. 
Yeah. You can't you can't debate with someone who's who is actively trying to hurt no. you. Or you know maybe debate with them afterwards, but they won't respect. There are some people who genuinely there are some countries won't respect your position until you've proven that they can't just take whatever they want or steamroll over you. And this is not my, my cry to arms or anything. It's just a case of have all the tools in your toolkit and then you can choose which one to use. Yeah. My sensei used to have a very good um, good way of putting it, which is that he said, karate is like a seatbelt. You hope to God you will never need it, but one day it may save your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you there. So yeah, um, these were our do's and don'ts of uh... <laughs> do's and don'ts of signature of, weapons of, of weaponry. Yes, of signature weapons. Um, so I guess to sort of to finish off, we should ask um, how have we used weapons in our own writing? Um, well, it's a bit. I was going to say I haven't really used weapons. Actually, I haven't. That's a That's lie. A lie. <laughs> terrible, scurrilous lie. Because I have obviously used weaponry in my medieval historical fiction. Um, yes. It would be a bit weird to write about a knight and not have him armed. To be honest. <laughs> yes. Um, and no, the the sword in question is just a good serviceable sword that Gregory has had for a long time. And it suits yeah. him, and it's not particularly decorative. He hasn't named it. You know, it's not his best friend. It's just no. a, a tool kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I haven't really given him a signature weapon. I don't see a signature weapon being passed on to any of his children or anything like that. Mm. Um, although, I suppose, if you look at Tyrant, you've got um, Isabel, Isabella, rather, sorry, who... Yeah has the knife that her father gave her um, when he taught her how to use a knife and she actually uses it to defend herself and kills someone who's trying to abduct her. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have Cuthbert who draw because he gets given the knife basically when he becomes a free man. Um, and he treasures that knife, and he pulls and he pulls it out in different situations. Quite often, when he like shouldn't. when Gregory's <laughs> yeah, when Gregory's being arrested, and Cuthbert comes out with his knife, he's like, "I am ready to, <laughs> I am ready to kill." And Gregory's like, "Oh God!" He's <laughs> like, "Put up your knife, boy. People will get the wrong idea." He's like, "I was handling it, Cuthbert." <laughs> people will get the wrong idea and Cuthbert's like no they're, they're getting the right idea I am ready to throw down Cuthbert can be really like Sididimus at times <laughs> um, and of course with that as well it's not only is it his his is it his weapon um, I mean he doesn't name it but I do like the fact that he treasures it and obviously I have a little bit of insider information there and that you know he does take it with him everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it's because not only is it a symbol of him being a free man, it's a symbol of him being trusted. It's a symbol of, um, you know, um, his position within the castle, within Gregory's household. Um, and it's also a gift from the guy that he sees kind of as a father slash brother figure. Yeah. So it's incredibly important to him. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I suppose you don't really think Cuthbert and think knife immediately. No, 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 but, certainly not. Um, yeah. 
but yeah it's i like the, the the meaning it has for him because it's not just a weapon it's also a symbol of freedom and of trust and of love yeah. which i think is really really nice to be honest um, in terms of urban fantasy, obviously weaponry doesn't come out very much in Unveiled. There's no real call for it to do so. <laughs> they are their own weapons. They are their own weapons. <laughs> However, it does come up in um, Harker and Blackthorn because Amy mm. is swimming in some far murkier waters, far murkier human waters, shall we say. So things yeah. like guns do come up, things like tranquilizer guns also come up and... I think I'm relatively accurate in looking at the practicalities of, you know, gun versus telekinesis, which, by the way, is not as easy as you think. It's a lot of maths and it can all go horribly wrong. Um, And, you know, the telekinesis versus harpoon gun, which has a hilarious outcome. (laughs) Yeah, hilarious. Hilarious. Very, very funny. (laughs) Wild swimming with the Loch Ness Monster. Uh the best holiday, and a bit later on um there is something that is a, a favorite kind of blade of mine that some misricordia come in um i like misricordia mm-hmm. mercy blades they are basically the long knife that was used to administer the death blow to a knife to a knight who had been so badly injured he wasn't going to recover or she yeah so um yeah that will come in in a future book Ooh. Um, obviously, uh, for Kestrel, uh, Galahad does have a blade. He has a sword, uh, because he's a knight at the round table. Um, and in the first book, um, there is a very prominent sword, which is featured. Um, I'm not going to go into kind of spoiler territory, but it's, you know, obviously that is a very significant weapon. Um, it is a named weapon. Um, and in future books, Galahad will also get his own named weapon with special properties because I'm a sucker for that and I really like that. Um, but of course, I can't really go into spoilers. In terms of the Sons of Thestian, um, this is also something we're going to see. We're going to see some named weapons too, but at the moment, they don't really have any named weapons Um Mainly because obviously the main characters have been, for the most part, magic users. Um, but certainly we have Joshua, who's, you know, very prominent with the bow. Um, and the bow is kind of, in some ways, you know, an inherited, inherited in the sense that he's learnt to use it in kind of memory of Faye. Yeah. And then Faye actually sort of helps him train further to use it. Um, and so there's this kind of this heritage sort of the spiritual heritage that's coming in through that as well yeah um but yeah i can't really give any (laughs) getting into spoiler territory but uh yeah um it's it's definitely been interesting um to write and you know i'm a sucker for weaponry yeah okay if you were going to give someone a signature weapon what sort of Uh weapon would you do and honestly i don't know this myself so i'm gonna have to think but (laughs) so give give someone on give someone a signature weapon um any anyone you know it can be a character we don't know yet or you know if you were going to have a character had a signature weapon what do you think you go for just imagining kestrel (laughs) (laughs) weirdly enough i wrote a story i did a writing exercise where i took kestrel out of 
um, the Kestrel saga, put her in a different setting where she wasn't magic. Um, and she ran around with a cattle prod. <laughs> yeah, that seems really on brand for Kestrel. <laughs> it's so on brand for Kestrel because obviously the way she kind of uses her magic is that she has this thing, she literally just calls it zap hands, where she can just sort of zip people um and it is like getting hit with a cattle prod um and so yeah it whenever i take her out of that kind of context yeah she she just goes around with a with a cattle prod um which i think is yeah definitely on brand for her just disrupts is a little bit painful but is mostly just there to kind of inconvenience (laughs) slash um you know persuade people to talk or get them to back off if they're kind of running at her um so yeah i think probably cattle prod for castrol just rather (laughs) iconically um and if she meant business she'd just pick up a gun to be honest (laughs) (laughs) what about you if if you had to give emmeline a uh a weapon what would you give her uh i don't i don't know if i would give her a weapon i i'm thinking if i (laughs) Not really a spoiler, but if I write the series that I want to write that way, way predates Harker and Blackthorn, which follows the original Harkers and Blackthorns, I would yeah. give Aubrey Harker um, kind of like a, a Victorian-style revolver, but I'd kind of want it to have a, a, a spirit of its own, so kind of like the sword with a soul, but only it's going to be a gun, and sometimes it's going to go, yeah, okay, I'll fire, and sometimes it'll go, no, I don't agree with you, I'm not going to shoot that person. Yeah. Um it it makes me there's another book that i've read uh by the same author who wrote Mordauzushi which is um uh heaven officials blessing yeah and the main character in it has a he has a spiritual weapon which is really unique it is a long band of like a long bandage of silk yeah which um he can use to um he can send it forth and it can move on its own kind of like a like a snake and it can strangle but he uses it like for grappling and stuff like that as well or to tie people up and things like that and it's really cute in that it has its own kind of mind and uh, when it's not in use it likes to snuggle up around his arm so it just wraps itself around his arm and it can get scared and stuff like that and I was like oh my god that's really cute that is randomly really cute I know. Oddly sinister, but really cute. Like my deadly weapon is a silk scarf. This is, this is, yeah, essentially. Like, well, yeah, actually. I guess you'd never be unarmed, would you? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and he just he just has it wrapped around his... It just looks like a bandage. Um, but then, like... And okay, this is a slight spoiler. You discover that he is essentially an immortal. Um, and he he tried to hang himself... But he couldn't because he's immortal. So he just hung there for several days, and this spiritual weapon he has is is the is the bindings he used to hang himself, <laughs> which is horrifying. And it, of course, he just because he hung there for so many days and there was just so much anguish and spiritual energy, it's now sort of come to life and it's very attached to him. And I'm like, this is. It's weirdly cute, but at the same time, very, very sinister. <laughs> so terrifying. But what an interesting way of doing of doing a weapon. Yeah, it definitely is. 
I'm thinking of all sorts of weapons. I mean, it gets to the point where I'm just like, these are weapons that I'd quite like for myself. So like an enchanted bow, for example, or a Naginata. Mm. I would love a proper Naginata. I love Naginata. <laughs> Naginata are cool. There's nothing wrong with a six foot staff with 14 inches of carbon sprung steel on the end. <laughs> My favourite is things which are weapons which wouldn't traditionally be weapons. Like, I'd love a weaponized hurdy-gurdy. <laughs> Yeah, and why not? In fact, why not? Because think of think of all the magical harps in Irish myth. Yeah, exactly. It's like, absolutely, why not? Hurdy gurdy, magical hurdy gurdy, magical hurdy gurdy. You, you wind a thing, and all these metal darts come flying out. <laughs> Depending on the tune you play, it's like, oh no, no, no! She's trying for fair release. It's going to be awful. The carnage. <laughs> My God! <laughs> Can you imagine if Elise played on a hurdy-gurdy? I, I don't even want to. <laughs> I don't think it really lends itself very well to that. No, I don't think it does, but it's an interesting idea. Oh. Um, right. Anyway. <laughs> on that note, we have come to the end of our episode with very little sort of disappearing off on tangents, so I say well done us and a big pat on the back. Um, yes, big pat on the so, back. So uh, let us know, what are your favourite weapons? Uh, are there any weapon scenarios in films and books that bug you or that you particularly like? Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yep. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Tumblr or our Twitter, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. So please do come and say hi. Before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, I've got one for you. Okay. Um, so I have recently finished a book by Claire Gradage um, called The Unexpected Return of Josephine Fox. It is a historical uh, crime um, fiction and it's based uh, in during World War Two. Um, and it's just fantastic. It's a really, really brilliant book. Very gritty in places. One thing I like particularly about it is the main character. She's in her 40s. Um, and the setup is her name is, is Josephine Fox. And she was a bastard. She was born in Romsey. And she was raised by her grandparents. Now, her grandmother wanted to keep her. Her grandfather, massive traditionalist, absolutely hated her. Her mother, having given birth, was kind of sent off on her own, sort of banished from Romsey. Um, she was just a she was just a teenager, um, very young. And Josephine was sort of raised by her grandfather until she was about sort of fourteen or fifteen, I think. In fact, I think she might have been a bit younger. Oh, that was it. She was almost 14 um, when her grandmother died and her grandfather went, right, off you go. Here's a little bit of money. Go to London. Never, ever come back. Okay, harsh. Yeah. Um, and what happens is that she goes to London. She finds her mother. She can't live with her mother. Um, they don't really stay in contact. She finds her own work. Um, she lives there. She makes a life there. She marries um, a doctor. So she kind of pulls herself up in terms of status um, and her mother becomes very very sick and in the last few sort of months of her mother's life she takes care of her mother um, and that's when they really get to know each other and one day while her mother is reading uh, a newspaper the local newspaper from Romsey which one of her um, 
uh, one of her her siblings has sent she suddenly goes very pale and she begins to natter on and and say oh my god he's still alive uh, your father's still your father's still there um now up until this point josephine fox assumed that her father had died um but she has then at 40 returned to romsey to find who her father is and she's returned to romsey just at the moment that a bomb hit uh one of the local pubs killing seven people inside except when they go to recover the bodies they find eight bodies and one of them has clearly been murdered and so she becomes embroiled in this mystery of who is this murdered girl who is her father um and it's this obviously this very closed off kind of right-wing community set in this time so she's not very welcomed in places she's welcomed by others um it's just a fantastic book the mystery is great uh the setup is is brilliant um and i really really loved the characterization because you do have these kind of uh first of all i just like the fact that it's you know it's a 40 year old woman yeah um who's the main character um and the kind of the guy she partners up with is this guy named bram um who has been severely disfigured who was dis- severely disfigured in world war one yeah um and i think it's just a brilliant book so it's highly recommended so that's the unexpected return of josephine fox by claire gradage the second book has been released and i believe that book three is incoming so definitely worth reading awesome i will add that to my tbr you absolutely should and on that note guys we'll say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week yeah thanks and goodbye bye you've been listening to dissecting dragons the speculative fiction podcast you can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from itunes for more information visit our facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com please note no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast <laughs>